the technology kind of started in the middle of the 20th century, but the mechanical watches, I mean, that's much earlier. You're talking like 1700s. Um, some of the stuff that was invented back then and made by hand, people are still really marveling over that they could do that um, and just almost figuring out how to do that again today with modern technology. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. And in today's episode, we explore the path of being a watch enthusiast. But before I tell you about that, just quickly wanted to mention the Half Hour Intern Podcast contest that we have going on right now, because as of the release of today's episode, there are only six days left to enter that contest. So in the contest, we have three really cool sort of camping outdoor recreation prizes that we're giving away, thanks to a past guest on the show. And uh, they're all really, really great prizes. If you want to know what they are, just head on over to halfhourintern.com. And there's a link right there on the homepage, which goes over details about the contest and exactly what the prizes are and links to them and stuff like that. But um, all you have to do to enter the contest is support the show by leaving a review on iTunes. I would appreciate it so much if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, now you can win something really cool because of it. And uh, I will actually be choosing a fourth winner as well for the most creative um, or the most unique review that someone leaves. So there's a really good chance of you winning something really cool by leaving a review for Half Hour Intern on iTunes. So on to today's episode. In the episode, I interview Blake and Zach, who are the founders of the Worn and Wound Watch blog, which quickly became one of the most popular watch blogs in the world. And from an outsider's perspective, if I had to guess why that is, I think it's because their blog has such a um, sort of friendly and approachable vibe to it. Watches is one of these, uh, can be a very uh, deep and esoteric hobby and can also be a very expensive hobby. Um, and that can be kind of intimidating for some. But the way that Blake and Zach have gone about doing their blog, I think is just awesome, which is it provides a lot of great um, sort of esoteric uh, advice and everything for people that are really into watches already. But it's everything is told and done in such a, um, kind of easy and approachable way that someone like me who enjoys watches but doesn't know too much about them can go and really enjoy the articles on the website and the reviews that they do. And something else that they do that I think is so great is they really make it a point to feature um, some lesser known watchmakers, some newer watchmakers that are doing some really cool things and some newer watchmakers that are making some really high value watches. So watches that don't cost a ton of money but are really great watches, um, which again, for a hobby that can get... Uh, really like up there in cost, it's really nice for them to be featuring watches that um, kind of like the everyday man and woman can buy. Um, so anyways, we will be talking about all things related to watches on today's episode. So if you like watches yourself, you should really like this episode. If you do not like watches and you've wondered, how is it that people get so into something like watches, then this uh, episode might be pretty interesting for you as well. So without further ado, here is Watch Enthusiast. Zach Blake, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely, guys. So 
I think to kind of set the stage for talking about the hobby of being into watches and, and collecting and, and all the things that you guys are really into, we should first just talk about watches in general. Um, so if, if you could first tell us, what are the different types of watches that somebody might have? Sure. Um, so the most like fundamental level, there's really quartz watches and or electronic watches and mechanical watches. So uh, I think a lot of people are introduced to watches and what they're most familiar with are probably quartz watches because they've been uh, so popular uh, in the last uh, 20, 30 years. They kind of came into popularity in the mid-70s because they were much more inexpensive to produce and actually extremely accurate, largely more accurate than their mechanical counterparts. But in watch collecting, especially vintage watch collecting, the focus is on mechanical watches and mechanical movements. And um, what those are are watches with essentially, uh, uh, you know, tiny little machines in them that are powered by springs that are wound up either by hand by turning a crown or through a weight that oscillates as you walk that winds a spring that supplies power to uh, an escapement. And that escapement uh, regulates the time that is being displayed on the watch. And then there's a whole slew of complications and uh, technical details that go into those. So you have mechanical watches that cost very little money, you know, I, kind of a, it's a really great starter watch in around the $60 range that um, a lot of us are fans of by Seiko. And then you go up to millions of dollars for um, extraordinary complications like tourbillons and uh, minute repeaters, things like that. But that's really like horology and that's, Kind of a whole nother world unto itself. Of course, in there also there's there's digital watches, smart watches, but anything well maybe not smart watch because that's running off of maybe like a cell phone signal, but a lot of digital watches that's all also drawing from quartz technology. Okay, so yeah, that that was going to be like my first main next question, um, and man, uh, there's already so many questions I have about <laughs> what you just said. So um, I, I want to dig more into the terminology of watches and stuff um, later, but just to take something right off the bat from what you just said, like what the hell does quartz watch mean? I've seen so many watches that just like on the face of the watch, it'll say quartz. I know what a quartz rock is. Like I know what quartz is on the ground. I always just figured when it said quartz that like somehow the rock quartz was in this watch somewhere and they were bragging about that. Like what, what does quartz mean? So within a quartz movement, there is a, a quartz oscillator, which is essentially... Um, like the earliest electronic movements famously made by a uh, Bulova had tuning forks in them. And they say as they took an electrical impulse, vibrated a tuning fork um, at a very fast frequency, which you could actually hear with those old watches. They're very cool. Um, and then it would uh, base the timing off of that frequency. The gear train would move based on that frequency. So a quartz watch um, is an evolution on that and essentially uses yeah I, an oscillating quartz my tiny little thing in there from an electrical impulse to uh, run the essentially to, to measure time. When you um, say an oscillating quartz, you mean an oscillating piece of quartz, like the like the rock quartz, like I was talking about. Yeah, I mean, yes. As far as I as far as I know, I've never actually you know I haven't built one, but yes, it is um, like a quartz a quartz crystal oscillator. Okay. Um, and actually, like I know Seiko, for example, grows their own quartz crystals for it. Um, but yeah, you're talking like. Uh, probably microscopic amount, you know. So basically it's just an inexpensive crystal for them to have inside the watch. Yeah. Yeah. 
That is interesting. And I'm not even going to try to pull apart the technology that you were just talking about because it just basically blew my mind and went totally over my head. That sounds insane. <laughs> yeah, no, it's complicated. I mean, honestly, you know, it's like one of these things like um, it's very easy to take for granted. Actually, with all watches, I mean, there's the engineering and mechanical side of it all is um, really, you know, thick, you know, and I think there are people... Uh, who can understand that stuff on a purely engineering level, who get a whole other satisfaction out of all this stuff. We kind of uh, get the layman's terms of that and maybe get a little bit more nerdy about it. But the actual, like, super technical, how that all works is still, um, I mean, it, it really is kind of profound and uh, fascinating. And the fact that those movements, quartz movements, I mean, these were, um, those were invented, you know, kind of, the technology kind of started in the middle of the 20th century, but the mechanical watches, I mean, that's much earlier. You're talking like 1700s. Um, some of the stuff that was invented back then and made by hand, people are still really marveling over that they could do that. Um, and just almost figuring out how to do that again today with modern technology. Yeah. It's so amazing. Like, I, I think with technology, we always look for these like big, grandiose technologies like, like an iPhone or something like that, you know? And like, mm -hmm. that's what seems like mind blowing to us. But yeah, you talk about just how like a watch works and it's absolutely mind blowing. And more mind blowing is how the, like all that technology that you were just mentioning that I could not even wrap my head around. You can go and buy a watch for like, that has that technology in it. So not just some like um, shitty digital watch, but like a, a watch with that technology that you're talking about for like 50 bucks, you know? And like that it's, it's how the, how does that even happen? Like it's unbelievable to me. Yeah. And I think what's interesting sort of going back to what Zach was saying about when quartz watches really became popular is that was sort of the, the selling point of them was <laughs> to that point you had these mechanical watches that, you know, and Zach can get into more of the technical side of it, but they are inaccurate to a certain degree. And then these quartz watches came along, which are technologically really interesting and, you know, keep much better time than mechanical watches. And that was really why quartz watches got so popular. And there was, you know, what's referred to in the watch world as the quartz crisis in the 70s. And, you know, a lot of mechanical companies either went out of business or almost went out of business because, you know, the market kind of got swept over by these quartz watches. And today, obviously, people like we were talking, you know, the enthusiasts are much more into the mechanical side of things. There's a tremendous amount of appreciation, and there's even a bit of snobbiness about quartz watches. But yeah. when they first <laughs> became course. popular, it was exactly what you're talking about that got people so excited about them. Yeah, that seems to be like the thing of now is obviously like everything old is new again, and then especially trying to make those old things even better than they once were. So, have mm -hmm. people been able to do that with mechanical watches? Like you were saying, that quartz watches were much more accurate than a mechanical watch is. Have people found ways to make mechanical watches um, as accurate as quartz watches now? Not as accurate. I mean, really, really good quartz watches. They're called high-accuracy quartz, or HAQ, if you're on the watch forums. Some of those, like ones by Seiko and Citizen, lose a few seconds a year. So, I mean, that's an exceptionally high amount of accuracy, whereas a really accurate watch loses or gains a few seconds a day. So, the you know, the difference is tremendous. But um, to... Make them more accurate. I mean, recently there's just been kind of use of new materials, um, particularly uh, silicon in the uh, escapements of the watches. So replacing a lot of what was metal with these, uh, yeah, silicium, as they're usually referred to, pieces, particularly like the hairspring, um, which is like the beating, the, the time regulating like organ of the watch. Um, by making all these materials, they're uh, longer lasting, they require less maintenance, and they're also highly anti magnetic. 
magnetism is a big issue for watches, um, mechanical watches in particular. It messes with them in a bunch of different ways. So that's just, I mean, that's one of the ways, if not making it more accurate, then making it accurate for longer periods of time without adjustment. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the standard for a uh, really accurate watch, a chronometer, goes back to, uh, you know, ships. And I mean, it's the same standard of being like a chronometer rated watch is essentially 99% accurate. And that is, um, I always get this, might get this backwards, but plus four minus six seconds a day is 99% accurate. But yeah, quartz is still superior to that. Yeah. Well, and now we have atomic watches and stuff like that. That I mean, yeah. obviously that's on the digital side of things, but uh, that you're just 100% accurate basically, right? Pretty much. They actually just, uh, we wrote an article about it. I'm not going to remember the exact uh, science behind it, but they just made a better, more accurate <laughs> atomic clock. Um, so the atomic clock itself is off every, you know, hundred million years. And now there's a, a more precise <laughs> version of that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. We can't be losing any seconds in a hundred million years for sure. Yeah. No. Um, all right, cool. So, uh, it, it, you, you've dug into it a little bit. If you could tell us about kind of the, just cause it sounds so interesting to me that the main, constituents of a mechanical watch specifically um since that's what people used to make back in the day um as far as you know back as hundreds of years ago and that's what people are making again today and from the way that you talked about it it almost sounds like a perpetual motion machine which is like <laughs> from what i heard impossible to make so how like yeah like how is a is a mechanical watch going down so like a simplest mechanical watch would be like a hand-wound uh, mechanical movement that just tells you uh, the time, okay? So there are watches that do more than tell time. I can explain that in a minute. But what would happen is you wind it, and what you're doing is you're putting uh, potential energy into a spring, um, which is often referred to as a barrel. Those can often, like in a very normal watch, would hold around 40 hours of potential energy without having more added to it. That energy is very slowly let out through the escapement, which is a uh, very tiny, very complicated uh, series of parts that involve the hairspring, which is um, an extremely fine um, spring, as the name describes, that just like it has to be manufactured with like the utmost precision. Um, and that is within what's called a balance. So that spring is basically making a weighted balance uh, move and oscillate, kind of turn at these uh, at I think around 270 degree swings. Um, that happens anywhere from around 18,000 times per minute to, well, there's now watches that are really fast, but the normal range you'll find uh, typically is 18,000 to 36,000 times per minute. And that is like essentially the timing, uh, the frequency of the watch. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but that as that is released into intervals of seconds, it is then transferred through a gear train into seconds, minutes, and hours. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, it is the slow release, the very timed release of energy that is turned into um, turned into time. <laughs> so, basically, it sounds like they're, you're taking the energy of winding up, of winding a little crank and breaking that energy down into much, much smaller units um, that can be kind of dispersed throughout the entire day. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, the, the escapement, which is it's just is keeping a very, very precise interval 
um, is releasing that energy at that interval. And then that is transferred through a gear train into you know the units that you need to see. So hours and minutes really being the most significant. Seconds on mechanical watches are often less connected, actually literally like 60, like zero on a seconds counter and zero on minutes don't often line up. It's more of actually just that they're ticking and counting. Um, but yeah, no, it's all about the release of energy. Man, people are so smart. It, it's just—it's like <laughs> it's just so amazing that anyone comes up with this stuff. Like I—I I love learning. I love learning new stuff, but I don't have it in me to just wit in the absence of books and whatever else to just like oh I'm just gonna totally create this entirely new concept called a watch and that's how we're gonna keep time now. Um, it's like it's just unthinkable that there's people out there that have done things like that throughout history and thank God for them. Well, isn't you know, Zach and I have talked about this in the past. Like, I think Zach, you were telling me that, um, like, the guy who invented the tourbillon, like, when that was invented, it's almost unthinkable that someone could have come up with that at that time, right? Yeah, no. So uh, Abraham Louis Breguet, kind of a great icon in watchmaking, um, invented tons of things uh, and kind of innovated on the concept of watchmaking. And a lot of what he did is really uh, set the standard for watchmaking today. Like a lot of his technology that he invented by hand at this time is still in use. But yeah, I mean, back then they didn't have uh, the micro machines. They didn't have even the ability to, you know, view things at the same uh, magnification that you can now. So imagine somebody working with a file and like a primitive version of a magnifying glass by candlelight, like making something um, as incredibly precise as a tourbillon. And a tourbillon, by the way, since we haven't said, um, is, a, is an invention that was meant to take that escapement and actually rotate it while um, it is working in the effect to try and uh, nullify or rather nullify the negative effects of gravity. So the early watches at that time were pocket watches. They were kept in your pocket, and basically based on the position they were in, they'd be more or less accurate. So they were trying to essentially counter that by moving the escapement itself. Um, and that now nowadays is more of a um, it's more of an aesthetic complication that, that brands do to basically prove that they can make it. It's a you're really only going to see that in watches that are tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of dollars because they're tiny and extremely elaborate and amazing to watch actually mm-hmm. uh, but yeah i mean that was invented hundreds of years ago <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was yeah. invented just in 1795 wow. you know I mean, incredible it, so and those are showpiece movements for some of the largest watch brands in the world now mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i mean someone like that it's like you only need someone like that to come around once every couple hundred years you know uh, in any given realm to just completely flip everything on its head um yeah all right, so before we move forward into the, the hobby piece of things, are there any more terms that we can go over that might clarify some of the rest of the watch talk? Because there's already been like a ton of terms <laughs> that have come up. Yeah. We clarified quartz. You just clarified the Torbjorn thing or whatever that's called. Um, like One question I guess I had is about um, different movements. Like I know there's Swiss movement, which I believe is like where it just barely ticks forward. Like, you know, it looks like there's maybe like a thousand ticks forward, tiny ticks forward on the second hand versus as a Japanese movement. That's like each second is like its own tick. Um, yeah. Give it, give us some more terms um, that we can know about when, when viewing watches and to help us out in this interview going forward. 
So actually what you just said there is actually something I should have mentioned when talking about quartz versus mechanical movements. So it's not Swiss and, and, and Japan that is uh, making that difference. Quartz movements are often most easily identified by the fact that the second hand ticks once per second. Whereas mechanical watches, because they have this escapement that's beating at a much higher frequency, um, as I said before, 18,000, usually to 36,000, the second hand sweep based on that rate. So it's usually something in the range of four to eight, um, like little stops per second, giving the second hand the perception of having smooth motion. So that's a very easy way to tell if you just pick up two watches, if one was mechanical and one was quartz. Then in terms of where they're from, I mean, there's the Swiss watch industry is the giant of the watch industry. You know, it's uh, kind of the standard for a lot of people, um, at least initially when they first get into it, like what a fine watch is. It's like a Swiss made watch because they've, you know, the Swiss have just always been pioneers of it and the industry really grew there. Um, obviously there's a lot of other places on earth that make watches. Germany is very uh, big right now. And least a brand like a location that we talk about a lot, cause a lot of really interesting things coming out of there. But of course, Asia is where the majority of all watches are made. Um, so there's, there's obviously Japanese like household name brands. You'll probably know like Seiko and citizen. Um, but then there's a plethora of Chinese brands that don't necessarily aren't really as much for sale in the U S but they're as big, if not bigger, than some of the Swiss watch brands in the rest of the world. Like Seagull is one that is just absolutely gigantic, but you don't see it really unless you're in kind of small circles here. Mm -hmm. um, I think one other thing I would just mention is sort of like a fundamental terminology would be the difference within the mechanical space between automatic movements mm -hmm. and hand-wound movements. So the movement that Zach described was hand-wound in that you power the watch by cranking the crown on the outside of the watch. But uh, uh, an automatic watch, the reason they use the word automatic is because it's actually a weighted rotor attached to the movement. So the way that that watch gets wound is that as you move, the rotor spins in the watch, in the movement, and it winds the, the watch up. So that's another big distinction. When people don't know a ton about watches, they typically don't know the difference. Or mm -hmm. oftentimes you hear people refer to automatic just as a blanket term for mechanical. But really, yeah. it's you, know, you can kind of split mechanics into two camps of automatic or handwound. So it sounds like an automatic mechanical watch would be as close as we are to some sort of like perpetual motion machine. So long as somebody is wearing that device and that person does not sit on their couch 24 hours a day, um, that watch is just never going to stop. Yeah, yeah. Barring any kind of mechanical failure, that watch is just going to keep going. Um, and I mean, that's a, an invention of kind of the mid 20th century is the automatic movement. And it's definitely the standard for normal watches. Um, Hand-wound movements are, I mean, at this point, they're a lot less uh, uh, common, at least in the price range we talk about. Um, they're a little bit, they're a little bit more, I don't want to say elegant is not necessarily the right word, but they have a certain kind of purity to the design of those movements. So it does kind of boil down to an aesthetic thing. But, and I have a few and you, you know, you wake up in the morning and you wind it, you know, a handful of times to make sure it doesn't stop on you in the middle of the day. Yeah, I imagine that a lot of those watches or all of those watches almost would be in the higher price range, like very similar to, let's say, photography. Like nowadays, because so much has gone digital, there's a lot of people that want to go back to analog and use film. But 
you can't really buy like a $20 film camera anymore. Like the only people making film cameras now, like new film cameras are, are really nice, you know, like because they know that it's people that care that are going to want to do that in the first place. Um, is it that sort of a thing with, with, uh, with a wound watch like that? Um, with mechanical watches in general, I would say, yes, not necessarily the manual versus automatic, sometimes manual, uh, or manual being hand wound, uh, sometimes are a little less, like if you had one watch that was available in both because there's less parts there and, uh, and what have you. But, um, just, I would more be like the, the quartz is the digital and the, uh, you know, the mechanical is, is, is the, you know, the, the old school film there where, I mean, they granted they both start, you can find really good mechanical watches at a very surprisingly affordable price. But when you get up to the more rarefied things, I mean, you know, $10,000, $100,000, that's I'm, I'm 99% of the time going to be mechanical. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, in the United States, watches just generally aren't as popular as they are in other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, and I think so. I think it's less common to see sort of affordable mechanical watches being sold in the U.S., like in big box or like retail stores, because mm-hmm. um, people just aren't looking for affordable mechanical watches. But they, they do exist. But, you know, yeah. you're more more likely to find them outside of the U.S. readily available. It's growing, though. Store. They're becoming more popular. Yeah. Um, that's something we've seen in the last couple of years yeah. with brands like Seiko in particular, as they are like a brand with the selling power to be in some big box stores selling, you know, $300, $400 mechanical watches now. Right. Um, it's funny this, um, I'm sure so many of these questions during this interview are going to be so similar to the, um, pen addict interview that I did, um, with the guy that hosts the pen addict website. He's like really into pens and calligraphy mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, um, and the when I was asking him about like what countries are really big for pens, it was like Japan, Germany, you know, and like it's so funny mm-hmm. that, that those same things are coming up here in this interview. Um, but again, it just makes so much sense. Like when he was saying that those are the countries that are into calligraphy and pens, it just makes sense, you know, and it, and it makes sense that that Japan, Germany, Switzerland, that these are the countries that are into making watches. Yeah, yeah. we also. You know, almost, you know, I don't know if it's related to that, uh, but it just sort of makes sense. There's really not much of any, there are some, but not much of any manufacturing of watches in the United States. It's really a very, very small, like, specific operation when people are making watches in the U.S., whereas it's much more common to see it than being produced elsewhere in the world. Uh, in some of those countries you had mentioned. So the these American brands that, that I have or that I see, um, they are, the brand is American, but they're not being made here most likely. Yeah. Yeah. At, at this point, that's, it's very hard to make fully make a watch in the United States. In fact, to call a watch American made means a hundred percent of it needs to be made here, which is actually the strictest rule. Um, in the world, as far as I know, for, for labeling. So currently there is no watch that is, or well, let me put a caveat. There might be one or two watches, but they're kind of being looked under a microscope right now if they truly fully qualify. But there's a brand in Pennsylvania called RGM that does make American-made movements. They're very, they're high-end, of course. Um, but at one point in time, I mean, the early 20th century, American-made uh, American watches were everywhere. I mean, American-made watches were the standard bearer. There was brands like Hamilton and Ball and Waltham and Elgin. But unfortunately, that all left 
our shores in the mid, mid to late 20th century. Really, like, yeah, by the 60s, 70s, I guess it was all pretty much gone. And now, yeah, it's, it's, people are trying to build it back up again. Yeah, yeah, like so many other things. Um, yeah. All right, guys, let's uh, let's delve into the hobby side of this thing. So, first of all, why watches? Like, how and why did you guys get so into watches? Oof. Yeah, um, well, I think, so Zach and I went to college together. We've been buddies for a long time. Um, and we were out of college like a handful of years. And I think, I think I was sort of looking to get my first watch and, you know, I think a couple hundred bucks, 300 bucks I wanted to spend on a decent watch. And, uh, you know, Zach's dad is a collector and he's been into watches. And so I sort of went to him and I was like, Hey, what watch do I get? And he's like, all right, well, let's look online and see sort of what's out there. And in that price range, you know, there just wasn't a ton of like stuff on wristwatches and sort of more an affordable price range. So that's where our sort of like business came out of where we started really looking into watches. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of where my interest grew in it. Yeah. But yours obviously started when you were much younger. Yeah. I, I, so I grew up around watches. Cause it was something my dad was into and he, you know, has a nice collection and, um, you know, it's just one of those, those things that we would relate on. It wasn't like, we weren't really like into like baseball and whatever it was like watches and cars and art and stuff like that um so i always had a watch on my wrist and it was always something i cared about and i know like i mean i almost all the watches i had until i was out of high school were swatches of course um better watches if you're going to be breaking something daily like yeah, as, a, for sure. as a kid um but then yeah as we kind of started to do the research that led into creating the website. Um, you know, we were just both in this position of where we just kind of had a little more money to spend and wanted to learn what else is out there. And the obsession now, like being an actual like collector of watches really began around the same time because yeah, the early days of the website, which was totally just started as like a hobby, uh, to kind of fuel our interest. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, everything kind of snowballed. And I was suddenly buying, you know, three or four cheap watches in a week, kind of seeing what they're all about, reading about them, learning, you know, and then flipping them and buying more and more. Um, so, yeah, the last few years have been crazy in those regards. But I, I can't remember a time that I wasn't wearing a watch. It's, it feels very weird. Mm-hmm. And me. now, Blake, <laughs> were you saying that, that, that a big onus for you and both of you guys then to start the website was to kind of help people out like yourself and that is to say like people looking for watches in your price range or just in general you had trouble when you were trying to find your first watch getting a lot of great like information on watches you're like maybe this is something we should do or is was it like look there's a huge dearth of information on watches in the like two to three hundred dollar range i feel like that's where a lot of people would want to purchase a watch so we need to be the voice for that sort of area yeah, it was definitely about like us trying to be the voice for price, watches in that price category. Um, you know, and, and you know, since then we're sort of broadly talking about things in sort of like the five thousand dollar and below range. That's sort of what's on the site now, but that definitely includes like much, much more affordable watches. Um, at the time, you know, when we first, you know, before we started the site, you know, there are these enthusiast forums that people go on, like Watch You Seek and Time Zone and things like that. Um, but they're, you know, they're completely uncurated. Um, so there's just like a sea of information. It's very enthusiast driven. So if you don't know what you're talking about, it can be really hard to navigate. Great, incredible resources for information. We go on there all the time to learn. Um, but as someone from the outside, it can be really hard to navigate. Um, and then beyond that, there was some content on the web on the web about watches in that price range. But you know, 
small watch brands, not a ton of marketing dollars. These websites weren't very big and they didn't have the resource to do like HD photos and, you know, video reviews and like really nice content. Um, so, you know, we just thought, you know, Zach's a designer by trade. He's a photographer by hobby now professionally through the <laughs> website. Um, we thought we might, you know, have a chance to put something together a little bit sort of nicer and more approachable for folks and cover a topic that other people weren't really covering in depth. Um, and that's always been our approach is to really cover watches that provide a ton of value that maybe other folks aren't covering as much and cover them in a really in-depth, like high quality way so that normal folks can come along and be like, oh, this is cool. I'm learning a bunch about things I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, that's so cool. And I feel like you guys have nailed it so well, by the way. So like kudos to you, because like for me, I... I have several watches. I love watches, but none of my watches are over $200, you know? And, and it's like, um, it still, I can go on your website and enjoy reading what you're writing and understand it. And yeah, it's all just very approachable and well done. It's not like, um, everything is so esoteric that outsiders are, just have no idea what, where to go or what's happening, you know? No, no, thanks for that. No, that's really the goal. And I think, Something else that kind of speaks to, like, I think our personal interest in watches and, and it's a bit of the approach that we take on the site, which I'm sure Zach can talk to much more, is, like, traditionally, I think watches were very much talked about as, like, these luxury objects. And there's a lot that goes on to, with that, like, obviously, luxury lifestyle, but also, like, with, like, the most famous, most luxurious brands, it's a lot about brand history and provenance and mm -hmm. heritage and things like that. And that is really wonderful, and there's some amazing high-end historical watches and watch brands that I'd love to own one day if I ever have that much money. Um, but for the watches that we talk about in our price range, like, I think it's a lot more about style and aesthetic and, you know, um, quality of build and, you know, design and things like that, like things that I think are a little bit more part of the language of people of our generation and people like us. So that's really how we try to talk about things. And like I was mm -hmm. saying, you know, Zach's design background, I think it's definitely helpful with that. Yeah, that's awesome, man all those things that you were just talking about and for those watches in that price range. And it's so nice for you to go out and do the research and find these brands and put them to the forefront is it's, they are unable to charge extra money for their watches, you know, because, because of name brand recognition or these other things that you're talking about, like any sort of prestige. So all, everything has to go into the making of the watch to either look good or have a quality build and stuff. So, um, but they're they're really a there's a big market for that b people should be congratulated for that and people should be rewarded for that um with some sort of recognition if they did a good job so it's it's great that you guys are doing that yeah, yeah. and we really like the brands you know these micro brands and kind of the new brands that pop up i mean there is a range we do talk about some brands that have been around for you know i don't want to say nothing probably more than 50 years or so but um, what's great about the brands that we talk about and like the new generation of watch brand that's that's come up in the last five years really is that they're much more uh, willing to take risks and kind of be listen to the audience and see what people really want and you know they think the brands appreciate worn and wound too for I mean our comments as well as the comments of our readers to kind of see where they're going with the watches but a lot of these larger brands these well-established brands that are you know giants um, in the luxury industry as well as the watch industry, uh, they're extremely conservative. And there's obviously a logical reason for that, but they never really answer what, like, the uh, enthusiasts really want. You know, they stay the course of what they're doing. They do the safest thing possible, the thing that's going to guarantee the most sales. 
you know, we know brands that do really, really weird stuff with their watches and they'll make 50 of those watches. And that's, you know, that's it. But they did it to kind of like try something, push design forward. And you'd be surprised, like over the years, you know, we've definitely seen trends change. And I don't know if any big brands would admit to it, but we really think that what the little brands are doing is very much affecting what we're seeing now coming out of Switzerland and out of like, uh, you know, the big the big events like Basel World and stuff like that. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it's got to. We're, we're living in such a great time to be alive for that exact reason. Mm. Um, it's just awesome. What is the most sought after uh, or like what are the most sought after features in watches and why? Um, I mean, well, OK, so first of all, I mean, mechanical, we've definitely kind of covered that. That kind of is often like a starting uh, question. Um, when it comes to like sport watches, uh, there's water resistance often plays a role. So dive watches are very popular and they're usually, um, it's usually kind of like a numbers game there. Like, uh, people want to know that their dive watch can really, really go down deep, even if it's way, 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 way deeper than any normal sane human person would, uh, ever go. So you're seeing watches with, uh, 300 meters is a normal water resistance and that's still extremely deep but that goes up to you know thousand three thousand five thousand some of them are just kind of doing it for the sake of doing it see like how much engineering you can get into a watch to see like what uh pressure resistance can be there um so that's something and that's you know whatever that doesn't necessarily have to be something you look for but it's definitely something we see um happening often um God, what else uh, crystal materials is something that comes up so the lens that's over the dial, there's three main materials that the, is made out of uh, acrylic, mineral, or sapphire. Um, mineral crystal is uh, usually what you'd see on more low-end watches. It's um, not as scratch-resistant as sapphire, but it is actually something that's more shatter-resistant. Sapphire, which is like a synthetic-grown sapphire glass, um, that tends to be on most high-end watches. Um, really starting at a few hundred dollars and going all the way up. Um, and they can be flat, they can be domed, they can have AR crystals, anti, I mean, anti-reflective coatings on them. Um, and that's generally, you know, uh, I hate to say it's like something you should, you like should always look for in a high-end watch, but if you see it there, you know, it is a good thing to have. And then acrylic is kind of the vintage option. So watches from the mid, you know, 20th century, early 20th century are going to have acrylic or plastic crystals. And you still see some brands using that today. And that definitely is for the sake of like adding kind of a vintage look to uh, the watch. I happen to really like acrylic crystals. They're soft, they're the easiest to scratch, obviously. But you can also polish those scratches out, usually without much difficulty. There's a bunch of uh, kind of like, you know, uh, pasty compounds you can buy that you just rub on them to kind of get that off. What, but what acrylic crystals do is they, they actually they have like a certain type of distortion to them that just adds a little bit of like uh, warmth, something a little bit more. It's a little more personality than the uh, mineral or sapphire do. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's another thing you'd look for. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, like, especially in the watches that we kind of get talking about, like more enthusiast market and sort of, uh, yeah, like contemporary watches, like I think it's a lot about materials and components and sort of trying to find things that, you know, are of the highest quality possible. I think um, a big popular sort of component of the collector community now is also about vintage watches, 
which, you know, obviously because of technology limitations of when they were made, like it's less a materials game, though it's a part of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's also about like rarity and, you know, company mm -hmm. history and things like that. So I think what you're seeing a lot with like vintage collectors is like really hunting after those ultra rare watches or those watches that have like a really specific story to them. Like one watch that has just in the last, what, five years skyrocketed in value is this particular Rolex chronograph worn by Paul Newman called, and it's a, it's a Daytona, it's a Rolex Daytona chronograph. Uh, it's the, the style that Paul Newman wore is referred to as the, the, new, the Paul Newman Daytona. And what, how much were those a few years ago and how much are they today? Uh, I mean, those still a few years ago were worth a decent amount, but I mean, they're all in the six figures now, if not higher, with some, I think, having gone for a couple million, oh the, the rarest versions of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's other, you know, even smaller, like, I mean, that's it. I think what Blake was saying is actually really true. And when it comes to vintage, it's all about these these rare and kind of uh, scarce watches that have a mythology behind them. Um, another, like, a more uh, down-to-earth, perhaps, example is there's a, another watch by Rolex, but their sub-brand Tudor called the Snowflake Submariner. These are a lot more common. Um, they're very cool-looking watches. They're really beautiful and I remember eyeballing them being like, hmm, $3,500. Like, what can I sell to get one of those? And now you're have a hard time to find one, like, under 8000 And it's really only a couple of years that that has happened. Yeah. Um, what makes something like that happen? Or is it like anything else in the world where it's like, God only knows what made that happen. And, like, lucky yeah. if you were to have one. Yeah, I think, I think it was that. You can go ahead. I mean, I was just going to say, with, with something like the Paul Newman Daytona's, there's like, and I, there's instances at auction houses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the one will come up for sale. People will write about it. There'll be a lot of hype around it. And then suddenly a new record gets set. And then that pulls up all those watches, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but there's just been a, like, a zeitgeist thing going on the last few years. I think we were, without knowing it, you know, and the kind of beginning phase of that as well, like, you know, we didn't, I don't think we knew that suddenly watches were catching on, that that's why we were suddenly interested enough to start writing about them and pursuing them. Um, but yeah, in the last five years, just the interest has grown dramatically. So there's a lot more blogs. The blogs are a lot more uh, refined and well done. And um, there's a lot of clubs and there's Instagram craziness. Everybody loves watches on Instagram. Vintage stores are popping up. And so just the hype that'll just suddenly get built around a specific watch now it can just take motion really fast so that tutor i was talking about people just started kind of i just remember seeing just starting seeing them a little bit more next thing you know you know it just the price started increasing and then this guy started selling it for that much and that guy sold it for that much and then that you know this cool guy on instagram bought it and like you know next thing you know they're kind of at you know they're holding now at this price i think but yeah it just that can happen with with any of these watches it's just it's a snowball effect you know yeah. And I think it's also, you know, people are always hunting for that next kind of rare find, you know, mm -hmm. and I think um, especially as more vintage sellers get into the market, they're obviously looking to find the next sort of hot item. Um, but yeah, I mean, you see it all the time. Like another brand that became very popular in the last several years is one called Universal Geneve. Mm -hmm. And they have a couple pieces that literally went from a, a few years ago selling for a couple thousand, four or five thousand dollars to now one just sold for what, like almost fifty thousand dollars, something in that. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, forty, I think, with box and papers and like, and like an unused one. Mm -hmm. um, part of what's interesting about watches like that, though, 
um, it goes back to scarcity. As they become popular and people look into them, they realize how few of these watches ever existed. Um, so, but yeah, it, there is an interesting kind of rediscovery moment as well with these brands. And it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of curious to see where it'll all, where it'll all end. Yeah. You know, what is going to be the final brand where they're like, okay, now we're pushing it, bringing this brand uh, up from the uh, $100 point to the $10,000 point. But, <laughs> right, right. Uh, I, I think also, you know, not to like belabor the point, but I think at least in the United States and with like men's lifestyle and fashion stuff, I think people are much more concerned about where things are coming from, mm -hmm. the history of the brands that they're purchasing things from, and like the quality of the goods that they're buying. I think in like so many facets, like, you know, even with computers, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, 15 years ago, people were buying cheap plastic clunky PCs, and now everybody has these beautiful designed objects that are Mac products, you know, or like, you know, in clothing, people are just much more aware of where their clothing is coming from, the manufacturing process. So I think it's a little bit of people being tuned into like quality goods and, and the mm -hmm. value of quality goods, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be so interesting yeah. to see, you know, 20 years from now, if this goes back and swings the other direction, or if it's um, more of like an awakening, as it were. And like, once people know all these things, and they start looking for these things, um, they are never going to go back to the way that they were, you know. But who knows? Mm -hmm. Most things in life do seem to be cyclical. So for all we know, 20 years from now, people are just going to be churning out really cheap crap all over again. <laughs> Probably. Possibly. <laughs> who knows? The cool thing with watches is that the watches that are here now will still be there. And if they've been well-maintained, you know, will still be running. Yeah. And the vintage watches from now will just be, you know, that much rarer and uh, have that much more aging on them. You know, patina is something that people get really into as well. And I think it goes... That's really a style thing, you know, I mean, the look of kind of rugged outerwear with like a really nice scratched up Submariner that has like slightly browned dial. Like you can't deny how cool looking it is. Yeah, totally. Know? The amount of irony, though, in the fact of like how much something like that would cost and the type of person that would be able to purchase that is probably not just like an avid scuba diver or something, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. But uh, I mean, I mean, I'm not hating because I would love to have a watch like that. <laughs> um, all right, let's get to, into some personal questions for you guys. So uh, if we could do like three rapid fire questions for each of you. One, what is your personal favorite watch? Like only one single watch that is your favorite watch. Um, and then obviously like why that watch is your favorite watch. Two, how much does that favorite watch of yours cost? And then three is how much is your most expensive watch that you own? <laughs> I guess I'll start. Um, so my, my, my favorite watch is the Hamilton Chronomatic. This is my favorite watch I own. Um, Hamilton Chronomatic from 1969. It is a, a small chronograph. Uh, that's something we actually haven't mentioned yet. A chronograph is a mechanical watch or non-mechanical watch that has a stopwatch function on it. These are usually easy to tell apart from other watches. So they'll have extra pushers on them and extra hands and extra dials. Um, so this one in particular was made by Hamilton, and it's using a movement that was known uh, to be used by Hoyer and Breitling. So it's called the Caliber 11, and it was one of the world's first automatic chronograph movements. Um, they were released in 1969, same time that two other brands, Seiko and Zenith, released other automatic chronographs. All three of them kind of vied for who was first to do it. Um, and it's just a very cool watch because, A, it's just beautiful. It's small and compact, really well designed, very attractive. So it's called a panda dial where it's a white surface with black sub-dials on it. 
um, but it has this funky movement in it that really is quite obscure. As far as value goes, so I got that watch at a very good price, a little over a thousand dollars, and they have recently been selling for uh, three to five thousand dollars. So nice, they have man. been increasing in value. Yeah. And then, what's your most expensive watch that you own? Um, I hope no one's no. Um, <laughs> I actually I like so I, I'm kind of a funny collector in that like I have I have never spent that much on a watch in the like compare and like that much being a watch term of what that much is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like what I've spent on a watch is absurd to most compared to other things. But uh, eighteen hundred on a watch um, that uh, I also love, probably my second favorite watch. It's a brand by called Sin. German watch brand. The watch is a. It's called the one five six, and it's another chronograph. It's very closely based on a military watch um, that had been made by Hoyer. There's a whole long story behind it. It's a, but it's a very cool watch. I, I love it. And what I liked about it was um, the one I got it was it was in exceptional condition. Um, I had to get it serviced shortly after buying it, which was actually good because now it's more or less like a new version of that watch. And it's not like an old, that, that old of watch. It's from the 90s. So I don't really think of it as like a precious vintage watch. It's just one of my daily, like, enjoyable watches. That sounds awesome, man. Blake, uh, how about you? Same questions for you. What's your favorite watch? It's good questions. Um, yeah, unlike Zach, I'm not as much of like a collector of vintage watches. I'm much more into modern watches. And um, love all my watches so much. Uh, <laughs> um, the watch I wear the most is probably, it's a Tudor Pelagos. Um, it's a dive watch by the brand Zach had mentioned earlier, Tudor, and they um, were sold in the United States, and they stopped being sold in the United States for a number of years, and they came back in a couple years ago, three years ago, and this was one of the watches they released around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really beautiful titanium watch, too, so it's nice and light, even though it's a little bit larger, and it's a dive watch. It's, very, it's, it's got sort of a hearkening back to some of their vintage watches. It's got that snowflake hand Zach had mentioned. So the hour hand is this big chunky square. Um, it's got very sort of like uh, geometric shapes applied to the dial. And there's just something so great about it. And I used to see it at collector's clubs. It was way outside of my price range. And I just couldn't put it down. And I eventually just sold a bunch of watches to buy it. Um, that uh, I that So I think the next question was, how much is that watch worth? Yeah, that yeah. Um, so that watch, I think new, it was like a little over $4,000. Mm-hmm. I did not pay that much for it. I bought it used for significantly less than that. Um, and actually that's my most expensive watch. I think, um, I think that's my most expensive watch. I don't really, like I was saying, I don't really have vintage watches that are increasing in value or anything like that. Um, and it's funny because, you know, to be honest, when I bought that watch, there was something a little bit conflicted about it because, um, you know, I, for a lot of people, that is a stupid amount of money to spend on something like a watch. And we're very aware of that here. Like, we love watches. We love talking about them. But we also are very aware of the fact that, like, frankly, even watches over $1,000 is just an insane amount of money to spend on uh, an inanimate object. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, but I just love that watch so much. And, like, it was a bit of an achievement for me to, like, sort of be able to save up for that and, like, really think long and hard about whether or not I want to spend that much money on something. Um, and maybe one day my girlfriend will make me sell it to like pay for something more important. Who knows? <laughs> um, so you mentioned selling a bunch of watches to be able to buy that watch, which is a great way to go if you're a hobbyist of anything. Um, where do you guys go to sell watches and where do you guys go to buy watches? 
Um, well, you can sell them um, on online forums, like through personal sales. And if you have a network of watch collectors or friends with you, you can also just sell uh, to them. Uh, but yeah, like a really popular forum is Watch You Seek. They've got a sales forum. Um, and I think, again, like as an outsider, the, when I first heard that like people go on forums and sell watches for thousands of dollars and you just kind of PayPal them money and get your watch, like that seemed crazy. But it's an incredibly trusting community. Mm-hmm. I, I have personally never, I've sold and bought several watches. I know Zach has more than me. I've never had any sort of issues ever on the forum. Um, and uh, and actually there's a pretty cool tool. If you if you want to like get into, this is good for like people who are just getting into watches and you want to kind of scope out the price of the used watch market. You can go to a website called Watch Recon. Um, it's run by a guy just sort of as a hobby uh, but it's this really incredible aggregator of all the sales posts from all the different watch sales forums, um, all the personal sales forums. So you can really just sort of like you can search by brand, you can search by type of watch, by price. And it's a really cool way to get a sense of like what things are worth. Uh, so I definitely recommend checking that out. And if you're obviously if you're into like buying a vintage watch, there's all different places you can buy, mm-hmm. you know, like vintage watches. Like we're, we're buddies with a really great uh, watch, vintage watch seller called Analog Shift. They're one of the best vintage watch stores here in New York. They've got an online site. There are lots of different places you can get vintage stuff. Then there's also, of course, eBay. It's a lot riskier. I don't think it's necessarily for the novice because there's a lot more um, fake stuff on there, a lot more. And fake, by fake, I don't mean literally like a a replica or totally fake, but things that have been altered from the original in small and subtle ways, um, which can be very, very hard to tell the difference. Um, Even for experts, it can be hard to tell the difference. So, you just have to really, really know what you're looking for or be getting something that's kind of, you know, maybe that doesn't matter to you or it's just very unlikely to happen because it's such like a, a generic watch perhaps. But yeah, a lot of people do sell on eBay. The one, you know, unfortunately right now, actually there was this, with the forums, it, it's a little bit harder now to to start selling because they require a high amount of um, posts. So you have to really be an active member. That used to not be the case. You can kind of sign up and just go for it. Now I think you have to have like a hundred posts on some of them, not others. So that is a little bit of a of a block, but uh, you can still buy more easily than sell. So okay, cool, man. Uh, great advice all the way around. Um, great info. Thank you guys so much for all this. Um, if you guys could tell us all uh, where to go on your website, and I I'm sure in the intro that I made, I, I already talked about your website, but if you just want to say in your own words, kind of summarize like what your website is about and where people can go if they want to learn more about watches. Yeah. So wornandwound.com is the name of the website. Um, And yeah, like we were saying before, the website is really all about value driven watches. So watches that may cost a hundred bucks, a few hundred bucks, or maybe, you know, four or $5,000, but in our opinion, provide a ton of value and you might not get to read a lot about them other places on the web. Uh, we also have a shop uh, where we sell our own line of manufactured products that we make here in the United States. Um, actually, most of which is made right here in New York City. Um, and you can get there from warnerwound.com or you can just go to shop.warnerwound.com. And we're, of course, all over social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can find us anywhere. Awesome. Dude, Zach, Blake, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a great time. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to enter the contest. Only six days left, or depending on what day you heard this, 
Maybe only two days left. Maybe only three days left. So head on over to iTunes and leave a review for Half Hour Intern right now to get entered into the contest. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.